0: Hello, and welcome to another episode or another moment with Eric Fleming. I'm your host, Eric Fleming, and today I just want to ask a question. It's pretty innocuous, I guess, and it's not necessarily what you might think the topic could be about question is, are we ready to lead? Are we ready to lead? Now, first of all, who is the we, right? So the we for this particular conversation is African-Americans. We can say people in color as a whole because really within the next 20 years, the majority of the population will be people of color. It's pretty close to that now. Um, But definitely within the next 20 years, if the trend continues the way it's going. We will be the majority, people of color. And of that majority, African-Americans will make up a third of that, of that majority. So it goes back to the question, are we ready to leave? because we are going to be in positions. And there there have been some books written and some conversations that have been held recently that of course are not on the forefront because on the forefront as, as I record this is the uh, trial, the Chauvin trial, the trial of the officer who killed George Floyd, which is compelling in itself. And President Biden has unveiled his $2 trillion infrastructure package, which is also compelling in itself. The political drama and the actual substance of the legislation, right? But those events, along with other things going on, I mean we uh, throughout the world and baseball has started um, But those things fall under what we're talking about and asking the question, are we ready to lead because, a lot of these issues are the ones that we're going to have to be at the forefront on dealing with the voting issue. And this is I guess this is the reason why I felt like we needed to at least start a conversation or you know start a dialogue or at least express my opinion in this conversation. So Georgia, the state of Georgia passed some laws that have been described as Jim Crow 2.0 and uh, voter suppression. There's like three lawsuits already been filed to challenge constitutionality and um, the tort that it's going to create, right? It goes point where it starts, you know, reducing the number of drop boxes and all that has even gone to the point where it criminalizes somebody going up and down a line to give food and water, right? Now, that sounds really, really petty. I think if they had used a general term like an in electioneering, instead of trying to be specific and say uh you know food and water because i guess that's what people were giving out to folks while they were standing in line in georgia and then a couple other states have adopted that same language by the way um you know i think it would have came across better and would not put certain entities like churches or anybody else into question like so can we give water to people and the uh the state senator butched somebody at Lambert wherever his name was he tried to be real slick with it on on the uh on his interview and I had Those are those kind of moments where I wish I was still in the legislature and and I really wish that I could debate stuff like that with people that try to be slick with it, uh, to expose them for lying, right? Because the whole motivation behind this is the fact that the Republican Party, has decided we want white people voting for us. We don't think we can get any more than 10% of any other group to vote for us. So we want to limit how many of them actually vote. right? And in states where people of color don't play a major factor, like the Dakotas or Iowa, their most dangerous group is college students. which ought to be telling in itself, right? But we want to restrict people who won't vote for us from voting, period. And we want to maintain control so we can draw lines so that no matter what happens, we will always have control of the state legislatures and possibly seats in Congress. The seats in Congress strategy has not worked so well, but state legislative strategy has. And as long as they have the power to continue to draw the districts, we're always going to have that dynamic in certain states where the Republicans have the majority of the legislature. And then sometimes we'll have a democratic governor against that republican legislature and then sometimes we have a republican governor that goes along with every republican legislature and so it's going to be the ebb and flow but that's getting to be a constant we have a republican legislature in certain states and that's because of redistricting so we want to limit how many people vote and we want to Minimize how many districts can be drawn for those people. Right? That's trying to maintain political power. Um, And it's tenuous, but it's not dissolving as quickly as we like. So, anyway. In that debate about the voter suppression bills, there were calls by people fighting against the legislation for corporations to step forward and uh, voice opposition, especially in Georgia. And you you have some major iconic brands like Home Depot and Delta and Coca-Cola who are based out of Atlanta. And then you have Aflac, which is based out of Columbus. So they were all kind of pushing them to uh, say something, right? And so they kind of did. And then the Republican legislators kind of went to them and say, it's really not that bad. This is what, you know, we'll make some changes. So the companies kind of backed off. And then when the final product hit and they realized that they had been lied to or manipulated, they were not happy about it. But by that time now it was already signed and the governor was signing it in the secret of night. And one legislator found out and she got arrested for knocking on the door. Y'all know the story now. So in light of these corporations in the middle of, Well, when they realized what was going on, um, they took a position against the legislation after it passed. But just prior to that happening, there were 72 African-American CEOs who posted an open letter asking for their colleagues in in the business community to stand up against this legislation in Georgia and in other states. And so the thing that caught my attention was the number 72. There are 72 African-Americans who have been, or are currently CEOs of major corporations. Or billionaires, even, because Robert Smith was one of the 72. So he's a major corporation himself because he's a billionaire, right? 72. That's. Almost. If all 72 were CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, that's almost one fifth of all the Fortune 500 companies in America to have black CEOs. And that's not necessarily the case, but that's that's a significant number considering where we were and considering what is a reality, right? Because the reality in America is that the wealth gap is still huge. between white Americans and black Americans. And you know, there's a pay gap in there too, which actually leads to the wealth gap, but the pay gap is a small part. The wealth gap is primarily because lack of opportunities still, for home ownership or property ownership, right? Um, for African-Americans. And so that's, and when you see the numbers, it's it's really, really stunning. Um, but yet and still, there are 72 individuals that have been or are currently CEOs major corporations in the United States. And that's an achievement, right? And so most of those people are either a little older than me or are my age, right? Some are younger, but when you talk about people in their fifties, it's usually about the time in your career. Where you are, if that's what you want to be, that's about the time that you'd be given leadership responsibilities, right? Sometimes you're fortunate given leadership responsibilities when you're younger. But general average, I mean, when you look at people that run for president or US senator or become CEOs of companies, they're usually around in their 50s. They spend a good time deal of time in their career about 20 plus years, perfecting their craft. And so now there's the opportunity to lead. And then you have those that are coming, the ones that are coming out of college, the ones that are uh, in their 30s, setting their career track to make that next ascension to leadership, right? Um So that's, I mean, that's the part where the, the those that are 50 are grooming the ones that are in their 30s and ones in their 30s are kind of mentoring the ones that are in college. Like those are the internships. You, you see how that cycle works? At least that's technically how I was supposed to go. Of course, the ones in their 60s and 70s were the ones that mentored us. So anyway, we've got people, 72 people, who are in those positions. And that's probably not all of them, but that's a significant number. And if you understand our history, our economic history, not just with the gap, but when segregation was in place, you had a lot of people in charge of their own businesses because we were just doing business with each other. Right. We weren't allowed to even go into some of these stores and these businesses, let alone run them in the white community. And so we had to have our own many capitalist society. And that's part of the reason why we have such a big economic engine, despite our wealth gap. We are a major economic force because we're major consumers and we always have been, you know, amongst ourselves first. And then when the opportunity came where we could uh, spend our money everywhere. Uh, even obtain credit, then the world got to see how big a consumer base just African-Americans are. Right? So people in corporate America paid attention to that. And so when opportunities came to, and some more than others, to groom African-Americans for leadership positions, especially women. Um, They did it sincerely, wholeheartedly, and there's a a net result for that. Um, And so now we have at least 72. So then the question becomes, as we become more a part of the majority instead of minority, right? And still when people of color become the more dominant population, that also means that we will be the faces of leadership in this country. Now, because of the history of this country and because of the way capitalism continues to work, white people will not be eradicated, right? There won't be a color wash as opposed to the whitewash that has happened prior to the inevitable or, or even this current state, right? Um, you, you still have pockets of all white men for the most part. If it's not all white men, then you got one white woman in the mix, right? But it's still all white, whether it's a business, whether it's government. You still have major pockets of that. You have states like that, right? Still, but so there won't be a, Uh, the the, the fear is that when people of color take over, that we're gonna do exactly what white folks did to us and we're gonna eradicate, and that's not true. That's not how the melting pot thing works. But we will be in positions where it's been an anomaly that we've had a black man to be president and a black woman to be vice president 30 years from now, that's probably going to be the norm. If it's not somebody Black, it's going to be somebody Asian, somebody Latino. You know, the Biden administration is kind of preparing us as a country to look at the faces of leadership of the future. When you're appointing all these women and all these African-Americans, all these Latinos and all these Asians, people of Muslim faith, people from the LGBT community, when, you, when you're seeing this kind of diversity being put into leadership positions, positions of responsibility, it's really a conditioning moment. This is not a blip. This is a trend. This is what's going to happen from this point forward. And society has to get used to it. But the bigger question is, are we ready to assume those mantle?s Are we ready? To be in those positions of leadership. Are we ready to take on that mantle? Are we ready to be the face of the nation? With and and, and the challenge and and it's no disrespect to my brothers and sisters and in other communities, but I'm a black man, I'm an African-American and I want to see us do well. And I know that there has been torture and pain in other communities. And it's not necessarily a contest Per se, but slavery was 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 a son of a bitch. And that's the reason why Africans are here on this continent for the most part. Now you know, you have people coming, immigrating, but initially, the reason why you have people of African descent in the United States is because of that peculiar institution we call slavery. And despite any other immigrants that have come, we were a distinct class in that we were designated in the United States Constitution as property. Property that could be assessed to provide representation. Now, if you didn't have slaves, you can use your property to increase your your representation. You can use your wealth. You had access to being a representative, to voting because you were wealthy and you owned property. But your house can translate into a vote. Your livestock can translate into a vote. Your horse couldn't translate into a vote. But in the South, your slave could, even though the slave could not vote. And they were given this arbitrary three-fifths of a man designation. They were still property to be insured to be sold and bartered and to be utilized for work. But they were uniquely chosen. And yes, if I had been a legislator during that time, if I had been a free man and sat in the Continental Congress, I would have made a proposal that's like, well, if we got three fifths of a man, slaves can be counted, and I want. 100% of that cow to be counted. If you're going to do that, right? It's like if you're going to count them, count them as a whole man. That is three fifths because that's a man, right? But if you say he's property, then my friend over here, you know, Pennsylvania, all these dairy farmers, they should their cows should count. If you want to go there, yeah, I would have made that argument. They probably would have thrown me out of the room, but so be it. Because black people were given that unique distinction, we have a unique history, and our struggle has led to uh, others emulating our struggle and being able to be successful. Our sacrifices have helped every American, not just us. So in the light of that, that's why I focus in on African-Americans. And so on the other side, I guess we'll delve more into why it's important for us as African-Americans to really embrace our future role as being the face of the nation. So like I said we'll catch you on the other side. And so we're back. So the question that I started the program with and left us on the break was, are we ready to lead? And I'm gonna say yes. And I'm gonna say yes because I think out of everybody who has become a part of this American fabric because we were, and I say we, African-Americans, we were targeted so, and we were so distinct that that focus has fell upon us. And it was not a surprise that We actually had an African-American elected president before any other distinct group. And although Vice President Harris is a hybrid of African-American and Asian culture, it's not surprising that. Somebody of the African American culture was given that chance. It's not surprising that before there was a Latino or Asian senator, there was a U.S. senator that was African American. I mean, the whole concept of the war between the states, the Civil War, was over the control of African Americans the south wanted to keep their free labor and the north wanted that labor force to fu- further fuel the industrial revolution right bottom line all the other romantic Mythological arguments about there were people that believed in the end of the abolition of slavery for whatever reason, whether it was the Mormons who felt that we were descendants of Satan and we didn't need to be engaged with them, or, or they need didn't need to be engaged with us, right? Or you know the the pure abolitionists who just felt it was immoral and against God, right? And they cited Moses and the Hebrews in Egypt. The real reason was economics. Who could control that labor force? Who could have the self-determination of whether we wanted to have slavery or not? Right, so yeah, I feel like we we have been more targeted, more um, picked on or focused on, I guess. I don't want to say pig focused on than any other group, right? So much so that when it was not uncommon for us to deal with Spain and Portugal, right, as a nation. It's not uncommon for us to deal with China or Japan as a nation. It was really, really uncomfortable to deal with Africa as a continent, let alone the nations within the continent, or even a country close to us that had African rule. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence did not want to recognize Haiti when they secured their independence from France. Why? Because what kind of example would that give to people of African descent enslaved in the United States if we recognize, if the United States recognized a country of ex-slaves that had defeated a European power just like Thomas Jefferson and his friends did against the British and I guess in another sense he was and that kind of exacerbated the relationship between Britain and the United States because Britain had already gone through the steps to abolish slavery I believe or at least the trade part of it anyway they were a little more progressive than us Not really saying much, but nonetheless, you know, that that's how much of a scary thought the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence did not want the world or at least the United States to officially recognize as a country the independent African descendants in Haiti. What kind of message it would send, right? So that's, I guess that's why. And so I I believe that because of that history, because we saw an experiment And it adds to the history and I always refer to it because to me, it was one of the most glorious moments in American history. And that was reconstruction because African Americans who were at one point literally slaves were now in positions of authority and they were making decisions that we still feel the impacts of today. It was because of the African American legislators that we have land grant schools. So Penn State and Michigan State and the University of Georgia. And you know, Mississippi State and any other land grant school you can think of, right? Then you had to create in the South, you had to create the black one, so that's why you have Fort Valley State, and that's why you have Alcorn, and that's why you have Alabama and M, right? For Louisiana State, you have Southern. I mean that was the biggest contribution. Of the African American leaders of that time, because they put in every state constitution they could get a hold of that public education was a right of an American citizen, or at least a citizen of that state for sure. It's never been adopted in the United States Constitution, ironically. Just a thought. But in state constitutions, especially in the South, And even when the white folks took over the insurrection that led to the end of Reconstruction, they didn't take that provision out. They left it in there. Because they benefited from it. Free education? Paid for by the state? Yeah. Yeah, we're not opposed to that. So that magical 10 year window where you actually had a black bank set up, where you actually had areas set up where black people could, you know, be successful in business and actually have business trade with white merchants and customers. Right? It was competition as opposed to segregation. Right, It was full-on capitalism. And in some areas, some of the blacks were wealthier than some of the whites. Because the whites, of course, were recovering. They were the ones that needed assistance. They were the ones that needed aid. So before there was a Marshall Plan in Europe, there was a major, major plan and some people call it the douglas plan where you had to give black people aid because they were enslaved and you had to give white people aid because they were war refugees at this particular point commandeered their land and taking all the stuff and they had to take an oath to the united states to get back in it's an interesting time black people were asserting themselves and becoming leaders. Now, some states still never elected a black governor like Mississippi, the highest ranking, I think, black was the secretary of state. But nonetheless, they controlled the state legislatures. So they were dictating policy. And then a couple of them, mainly Hiram Revels and Blanche K. Bruce, showed up at the U.S. Senate. And you had several show up in the United States Congress, like Robert Smalls, John Lynch. And so... For that window, we saw what America could look like with black leadership. And for some folks, that frightened the bejesus out of them. For other folks, it was it was refreshing. But because the majority of us were in the areas where in the well, the south we were in that part of the country that had been defeated. It's where all the insurrection took place and and we were vulnerable and we lost it. And, And we should not ever be vulnerable like that again, which is why we must be very, very vocal and vigilant about what is happening in all these states, trying to take away our right to vote and why we should push for legislation that the supreme court can't overturn to protect the rights of voters because the supreme court and their wisdom said "Yeah, well, yeah we're past that obviously not based on all the bills that are being introduced just this session alone again so I think that black people are ready to lead. I think you know there's there has always been the concern about and the debate about whether we should go to historically black colleges or go to uh predominantly white institutions that's what we call p w i s by the way uh you know, whether it's Agnes Scott or Harvard, right? Monmouth or Yale, right? It, should we should we even attend those schools even though we have that ability to do do it? And W.B. Du Bois said, yes. Booker G. Washington was like, man, you know, I, we done built these black schools. Now, what do we need to go there for? You know. Go where you want to go to school. Go where you can get the education and the experience you want. Even if it's just online, go to the school that you want to go to, right? It's my opinion. But you do understand that you're going to be exposed to certain things at an HBCU, and you're going to be exposed to certain things at a PWI, especially those schools like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, who were designed, especially Harvard and Yale, who were designed to create the leaders of this country, right? So to have somebody like a Barack Obama or Stacey Abrams, or even a Clarence Thomas, who went to those two particular schools, right? Harvard or Yale, right? That's where You've, you've seen leadership emerge in the black community in our lifetime, right? But to see a Kamala Harris is what we've been really pushing for. Now there are members of Congress who are HBCU graduates, right? But a vice president of the United States, that's awesome right and that's that was the vision that Booker T and all these other folks when they started and these black legislators were pushing for right so we were always of the generation that felt as though that our parents and our grandparents made the sacrifice for us to be full citizens so now we're of that age where Not only are we engaging ourselves as full citizens, but we're now engaging ourselves in positions of leadership. We're asserting ourselves and demanding that we get that, those positions. And so once we see those faces in those positions, now the generations behind us won't have any kind of, barriers in their mind right and there's a mixed message that they're seeing they're seeing black people become president and vice president and senators and congressmen and ceos of major corporations but then they're also seeing george floyd and Burana taylor and alton sterling and philanda castile and ahmaud aubrey and and uh, even even tamir rice and um you know, just, just all of these people, these, these young Black people being killed in the streets by people that are supposed to protect us. And then we also are dealing with the internal struggles within our communities where we are killing each other, that we seem to not have a value of each other's life. We value money and our products, whether it's drugs or, something else illegal that we're selling over the human life that we are dealing with, right? That may be in competition with us on land we don't own that we call turf, right? So we, our generation first really dealt with that. especially in the bigger urban cities. I think our generation probably had it more than everywhere else, right? I think it was Chicago, New York, LA more so than Atlanta and Seattle and Dallas, right? But as those cities got bigger and inner cities, you know, tendencies became similar, same kind of Crime that was happening and organ, you know, gang activity, all that other stuff happened in every other major city, right? But we've we've so generations have had to combat that. And one way we combated it was creatively was through music, primarily rap music, right? Where we told the story of what was going on, whether you wanted to acknowledge it or not. If all you cared about is the beat, great. But these folks were telling their experiences. And whether you approved of it or not, they told it. And so we've seen in the entertainment realm, even, because you created all these concrete jungles you created all these basketball players right who icons and then you have the few like the Serena Williams and the Tiger woods that have cracked barriers and sports that weren't traditionally us involved right but the see the Michael Jordans and the and the LeBron James's Kobe Bryants you shouldn't be surprised about that Right. And they they've become iconic figures. That people from all over the globe, let alone the United States, embrace as leaders. As people that, oh, well, Shaquille O'Neal is endorsing this product, I might buy it. Oprah Winfrey has done it in entertainment, built that trust that same level of trust that Walter Cronkite had telling the news right so you, you you've had you 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 have been as we have Americans have been indoctrinated slowly well, we can accept the fact that there is a major movie studio owned by a black man we can accept that We can accept the fact that we can see black people as astronauts. We can even embrace the fact that it was black women who figured out the mathematical equations for us to go to the moon. We can accept the fact that a black superhero is good, <laughs> is, is is awesome to emulate as a child. I want to be him. For her. That's why I say we're ready. And it's only going to get better as we continue to push the envelope, right? The more we learn about all of these people who came up with all this technology that we're using now, whether it's 3D glasses or 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 cell phones. I, Black people were involved in all that. And that's because we were pushed and we have done our best to push. I think we've coddled more than we pushed, but whatever our strategy was, seems to have worked to a degree because our children are as vocal, if not more vocal than we were when they see injustice. I don't know. All I know is, is that when the time comes for us, I believe we will be ready. But our biggest challenge going forward is not just the perception of leadership, right? Being in those positions of adoration and respect. It's the power that comes along with that because we've had a black president, we're currently having a black vice president now, and we have black members of Congress in both houses, and we have We've had black governors and we've had black speakers of the house and black lieutenant governors, but we still have this incredible wealth gap. We still have this incredible financial handicap. Even in one of the most powerful economies in the South, which is Atlanta, there's a wealth gap even amongst the black people that is disturbing, let alone between whites and Blacks. And so part of the challenge of leading is fixing that problem. And it's not really a one kind of Band-Aid solution for that. It's a number of things that's going to take time. And so as we assume this mental leadership, we also have to assume that there's this one major challenge that's left, and that's economic parity. Because if we don't figure that out, the, the burden of white supremacy will still be on us. The burden of abject poverty in the United States will still be on us. I can defeat racism with equality, and I can defeat poverty with avenues toward wealth. the challenge of the black leadership that is ready to lead has to be ready to fix that problem, to achieve that equality, that equity, even. I just say that equity more so than equality. We have to, we have to make that our charge if we're going to lead and be successful. And, and I think we can, I think if we put our minds to it and, and it's, it's not just an issue for African-Americans, of course, there's other people of color that are dealing with those same dynamics. But like I said, because I'm African-American and because that's where my heart is, that's why I wanted to the frame, this short conversation that way. Um, but the bottom line to the answer to my question is I think we are ready, but we have to know what we are up against and what we have to work on if we assume that leadership position. Until next time.